Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Aparna Kopalan, and today we will be talking about the new book, Landscapes of Accumulation, Real Estate and the Neoliberal Imagination in Contemporary India, which came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2015. The book was authored by Professor Yurena Searle, who is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of Rochester. Few who have visited India in the past few decades have failed to notice the sudden and spectacular urban transformation that has taken place in many of its cities. Gated residential complexes with tennis courts and indoor gyms, glitzy office buildings, gleaming five-star hotels, and of course air-conditioned malls have become ubiquitous as the face of a new India, often understood as symbols of a long-awaited global modernity. Getting behind this glitzy facade Professor Searle shows that these buildings are not built to service consumer India. They are built for real estate developers, international investors, for whom Indian real estate has become a profitable speculative gamble. Indian land and buildings are no longer local resources for production or use. They are turning, or more accurately, being turned, into internationally tradable financial assets. How this happens, by whose effort, and against what frictions, is the story the book tells. Searle shows that it is through the narrative of a rising Indian middle class that investments are solicited and a real estate boom created. Through ethnographic attention to the practices and labors of real estate producers, Searle offers an innovative, sophisticated, and refreshingly human story of the making of neoliberal India, a story that ultimately shows that the new landscapes that are cropping up all over India are landscapes first and foremost of accumulation. This book will be of interest to readers in urban studies, economics, anthropology, and of course, South Asian studies. I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Searle about her book. Here's my interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Professor Searle, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Um, To begin, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be an anthropologist and how you came to be an anthropologist interested particularly in real estate and in North India? Um, I guess there's a number of different things that uh, came together in this project. Uh, First, I guess I'm I'm the daughter of landscape architects, so I've always been interested in landscapes. Um, I've always been interested in the built environment and sort of training a, an eye on the world around us. My undergraduate degree was in art history, um, and I did a fair amount of architectural history. So as I began visiting India, and I had made numerous visits before kind of um, beginning graduate school, Um, I was always looking at the built environment and really interested in Indian cities and how they had changed and the sort of historical trajectory and all of that. But as I was here over time, I noticed it's very hard to miss places like Gurgaon that had come up and I was really interested in sort of why this place, why these 
um, kind of glass encased, particularly globally oriented um, buildings. Why were they coming up here? Um, who was designing them, etc. And so that really just sort of started my questioning. I actually began graduate school in urban geography um, uh, because of my interest in place and cities. But I was then drawn to anthropology because of the methodology. And I really wanted to learn how to do ethnography. And I felt that capturing people's own experiences and point of view would be necessary to understand what's going on. Um, and in particular, at that time, there wasn't a lot in urban geography that actually, where people had actually talked to real estate developers, it was sort of a black box. So people talked about the effects of urbanization or the effects of gentrification, kind of things happening in the city, um, and but primarily talking to residents. Um, and so it was kind of like this... I don't know, these kind of bad guys who were never given um, a face or a voice. And I felt that with the tools of anthropology, perhaps I could get inside the world of, of real estate production to understand sort of how it worked. Um, it, yeah, so that, that's sort of how I, how I came to this topic. I, you know, and, and even initially, even with that kind of understanding, I still was very much interested, I think this is my art history background, in talking with architects and trying to understand the design of these buildings. And I quickly realized that I shouldn't really think in that way about the buildings, that, that really these buildings were to financial tools. They were ways that people were making money and that that was the driving factor here um, and that architects, for example, weren't necessarily being paid very well or they never finished drawing. So the buildings didn't necessarily represent uh, architects' vision, although to some extent they did. Um, and they, it wasn't a, that I shouldn't take like a tr traditional anthropological approach was to think about, which would be to think about the spaces that buildings create and the kinds of social interactions that they foster. But I really didn't need to kind of change my mindset and think about them as financial tools. And so that's how I got into sort of studying even more in terms of the financial flows that were producing these kinds of landscapes. Thank you for that answer. Um, that that definitely is something that is so rare about your book. Um, one reads so much about financialization of land, and yet one never really hears from, you know, these private sector elites that you talk to. Um, and you do describe, as you started to, some of the reasons that you thought it was important to pay attention to these groups of elites because, you know, we can't get the full picture by looking at consumers or residents. Um, but you also talked in the introduction of your book about some of the challenges that you encountered in studying this group. Um, so could you tell us a bit more about those sort of methodological challenges for an anthropologist as an anthropologist studying, you know, investors and developers? Yeah, I mean, I think every anthropologist faces these kinds of challenges, but just slightly different ones, right? So that one's positionality, who you are and your social position then shapes your access to informants. Um, and in this particular case, my positionality as a young white American woman and a student um, really didn't help me <laughs> um, in gaining the rapport of um, these men, because um, it was primarily men as sort of male-dominated industry. Um, 
both the um, foreign private equity um, and other real estate investors uh, who were working in the market, they were primarily men, and the Indian real estate developers were also primarily men. So there's like lots of men, patriarchal society. I was young. I was foreign. <laughs> I was a woman. So these, these things just didn't really uh, lend themselves to kind of easy rapport. And I think the other thing is that I underestimated um, – uh, going into it, the challenges of studying up. I mean, this has actually been well documented and other people have faced these issues as well, but being on a graduate student stipend um, and yet trying to sort of fit in at industry events where, you know, I didn't have the right kind of cell phone. I um, didn't come in a car with a driver. Um, I just... I didn't really have the sort of accoutrement um, to allow myself to fit in. And for the most part, that was fine. Uh, but then occasionally, you know, doing the field work, it, it actually did like there were places I couldn't go uh, because I didn't have the money to gain access. Um, and there were also plenty of people who, you know, the, the market was really booming. So my informants were all extremely busy um, and, I don't blame them, but they didn't really see what value could come from chatting <laughs> um, with me. And a lot of what they were working on, you know, it's the, the information was valuable, valuable to could make or break deals. So they didn't want to share that with me. And no one really wanted me to sit in as they were making deals, which also I totally understand that 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 in the this you know kind of high stakes game of making connections and you know buying land um, and signing on uh, partners that they didn't need to have a kind of unexplained presence at the table so doing a kind of um, traditional ethnography uh, where I was like fully enmeshed in people's lives was a little bit tricky you know also the for example the socializing that these folks did um, was tricky for me to do as a young woman, given that they were, it was such a kind of male um, mm. sociality uh, that I, I just really didn't have access to. Um, so, I mean, those things were all there. I did eventually um, kind of uh, connect with a European real estate development fund, um, and they let me sort of hang out in their office a bit, and that was really helpful. Um, uh, and through them, I made a lot of contacts, even if I don't write that much about kind of what the day-to-day -day life of the office, that was very helpful. But, you know, a lot of my work um, was, I think, necessarily interview-driven um, and uh, based on documents uh, as much as it was uh, ethnography. Although, I mean, obviously, every event that I could attend <laughs> um, and every moment that I could possibly kind of insert myself in, um, I, I tried. Uh, but, you know, it's it's a, I guess it was a sort of challenging industry to uh, take part in. Yeah, definitely. Um yeah, but you you definitely managed to sort of get a lot out of, you know, your informants as well as the documents. Um, so the first half of your book um, in particular focuses on the work that is done by what you call the India story um, in creating the real estate boom that you were witnessing and um, in, in general in sort of uh, financializing space in the national capital region. So what is the India story? Um, who's telling it? Who's the audience? And what are some of the ways in which it acts as what you call speculative knowledge? Sure. So this is something that um, I think even as an anthropologist, I was surprised uh, in doing this work about the power of stories. So 
my informants actually referred to the India story as the India story. Like this was a title, a term that they used um, to mean this idea that India was about to kind of come into its own as a global player, um, that India was poised like China um, to kind of grow um, exponentially. This is a time of high GDP growth. Um, but it, it, it was more than just economic growth, right? There's a sort of social vision here that Indian consumer society is growing. So incomes are going to go up. So there's going to be so many more consumers in India that it's a young pos- uh, population that's growing. Um, that and and then in real estate, uh, a, an idea that those young people are going to form nuclear families, so they're going to want lots of individual apartments, that they're going to be able to afford expensive apartments, that um, that thus prices are going to be up. It's sort of a way of talking about both a real estate market and a society that um, would make a good place to invest in, in and sell, build and sell real estate. Um, the story has many sort of tentacles, um, but uh, it was told, I mean, it was sort of one of those overwhelming things where everyone I talked to used almost the same language to describe what was happening. Um, And that I found really, really fascinating, that there would be such coherence among different people in their description of um, India, Indian society, Indian economy, and Indian real estate. so, you know, I write about this as a story that people told themselves and helped to shape the decisions they made, investment decisions, construction decisions, and also a story that, for example, Indians were telling to uh, foreigners in order to draw the money into Indian real estate because um, Indian real estate, the, the industry had just been liberalized. So uh, this meant that for the first time, in 2005, it was possible to um, invest uh, from outside um, into Indian real estate. Now, there were various regulations that shaped how that investment could happen, um, but that meant that there were, uh, partly because of the global monetary situation at that time, but there were a lot of investors from Malaysia, Singapore, Europe, America, etc., who were very much interested in putting their money into Indian real estate. But part of that interest, I'm arguing, comes from the repetition of these stories. You know, and they have many origins, which I try to trace. So some of the early chapters of the book, I'm kind of tracing out, um, you know, something that I heard an informant say, could I find um, a report that actually used that same phrase or statistic? Could I see it in the newspapers? Could I see it, you know, how could I trace its circulation as best I could? Um, And many of these stories come back to um, the BRICS reports that Goldman Sachs put out, um, which uh, argued that uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and China would soon over overtake um, uh, overtake uh, the traditional like sort of Western Europe in terms of GDP and economic growth. Um, and I looked at the way that then uh, that those reports got picked up by the Indian media and the Indian business media and then find their way into the kinds of um, investor prospectuses that Indian real estate developers and others were putting together to try to draw an investment. Um, And then, but I also trace the story in how people were talking about price appreciation um, and how people were thinking about Indian consumers. So I look a lot at these other kinds of consultancy reports um, and investor presentations um, and just really trace through 
this story's many um, sort of iterations and then think about it. Also, you know, there are a lot of predictions about what's going to happen in the future, right? The India story is a future-oriented story. And I argue that instead of thinking about whether this is true or not, the whole point of this kind of predictive story is to think about what work it does. So how does it help um, how do people telling the story use that to position themselves in particular ways and use that to attract investment or sell apartments or increase their market share? So thinking about these stories as doing work, interactive work for people in the industry and thus you know, tracing their circulation in those, trying to capture that in those interactive moments and think about um, its movement and its power that way um, as it's involved in these various value projects of the different people that I was interviewing. Hmm. Yeah, um, I feel like the India story's full um, gravity f- sort of came through for me, especially in the conclusion where you go back you know, to Gurgaon to find that the rental apartment market has crashed because there have been too many apartments produced and the consumers who were sort of predicted to materialize um, didn't. And so it seems like one of the um, key features of this kind of the India story and this kind of future-centric temporality of your informants is that it does generate sort of immediate profits, but um, it seems like in the long run, um, it's unsustainable, you know, even for themselves. Um, so ultimately, who benefits from the India story? And what are some of the enduring effects of the India story that sort of um, outlast, you know, market booms and busts? That's a really good question. I mean, I think, uh, as you say, like, the India story had very good um, short-term effects for the people telling it often, right? They were able to um, float an initial uh, public offer on the stock exchange, or they were unable to make a partnership or to sell some buildings. Um, And uh, in some senses, that's, for my informants, that's all that mattered, right? It was, they talked about... um, long-term investment and a long-term future. They talked about a long temporality in part to reassure other people that this wasn't speculation. So that was a concern. And I would even say an anxiety of my informants um, is to talk about sort of market fundamentals and solidity and long-term growth. Um, But really people were quite, quite focused on that short-term gain. Um, but as you say, right, that this this was speculative and, there, you know, there just aren't enough people in India who could afford the kinds of apartments that were being built. Um, and so part of my interest in speculation in the India story, right, is to think about why were these buildings being built in the first place if it's fairly clear that there just aren't enough wealthy people to buy them. Um, but the, you know, so even if it produces, uh, um, you know, so in the long term, even if there is a, a a market bust or, you know, they don't sell as many apartments or many of these real estate developers got into an incredible amount of debt and many of them are kind of mired in lawsuits. And right now there's just, you know, many more apartments, for example, in Gurgaon outside of Delhi than can be sold. So you're right. It did, it, you know, the, the boom did, precipitate a bust and um and obviously many people made losses but 
people also, um, you know, uh, sold and, um, and bought land, you know, so it, it was, it was productive. It just might not have been productive in the ways that people had hoped. And some people certainly made out very well through this. Um, I would say though, that like, overall, this story helps to, I saw it as a kind of alibi, which enabled people to sort of, to real estate developers, real estate producers, to produce buildings for wealthy elites in a country that um, is full of people who are not wealthy elites, right? So it enabled a kind of capture of resources for the elites um, with this kind of thin veneer of the, the kind of predictive and future-oriented quality, which sort of said soon India will look just like, you know, name your Western country or more developed place. Like, you know, soon Gurgaon will look just like Singapore um, was a way for people to, um, uh, or a, an alibi that people used in order to build these very swanky elite places. And in fact, to capture that land from farmers, um, from uh, poor people living in cities whose homes were demolished to make way for this. So it's, it's, it was a way to, um, or it served to disenfranchise the poor and enrich elites, even if um, later there was a bust and, and, you know, not all the apartments sold and that sort of yeah, thank you for that. I think that for me was one of the most important contributions of your book. Um, in early in the book, you discuss, you know, there's a lot of scholarship recently on accumulation by dispossession, but a lot more attention has been paid to the dispossession aspect of things than the accumulation and the forging of the roots of accumulation. Um, and that comes through like even in the title of your book. Um, so I thought that was sort of such a such an important insight that um, even when markets come and go, you know, the the forging and the sort of making of these enduring relationships and these sort of uh, roots of accumulation that stays and maybe even enables, you know, future um, projects, value projects. Um, so thank you for that. That was I really loved that, you know, that um, framing. Um so in the second half of your book, you sort of uh, switch gears a little bit um, and you talk about Indian real estate developers and foreign investors as these two groups who want to work together to profit from real estate. But um, there's all these difficulties um, and it takes a lot of work to, for them to work together. Um, and you say that foreign investment is not just about moving money. Um, but it's about making Indian firms and Indian buildings investable. So what does that mean um, and how is it accomplished? Yeah, I was really struck doing the field work um, by how much work it was taking in order to move money, right? That this wasn't some sort of like instantaneous flash finance, just kind of it's just zeros and, and ones and it just moves quickly through the international financial system, but that my informants were doing a lot of work and part a lot of that work actually was this kind of image work, right? So it was about um, convincing other people. So for example, if you're a private real estate uh, investment fund and you put up together all of this money from various investors around the world and it's in a fund and you've come to India and you want to invest it, um, before you are able to do some kind of tie up with an Indian company. So you can invest it either in a construction project um, or in an Indian company at the 
corporate level, um, and then it would flow into the various construction projects that they have, uh, they're doing. So you either have to make that particular investment, like the um, construction project or the corporation, look like something you would want to invest in, right? And so people are doing research and they're trying to work out where should we invest that money? Which of the many, many Indian developers is a, is a company that's trustworthy, that's doing good work, that has a you know profitable business model, et cetera. And they're doing all of that research. But in so doing, and in also in communicating back to, you know, an investment board that might be sitting in New York or in London, they also need to um, I guess in some ways kind of either gloss over or fix many of the problems that from an investor point of view, they see in the way that Indian real estate is being done. So from their point of view, um, you know, they have a very different model for how real estate should progress, what construction would look like, what finished buildings in fact should look like, um, you know, from their point of view, you know, there were buildings all over India, obviously, but from an investor point of view, there was no investable buildings, um, which meant that they also felt that many of the construction projects that were coming up were also not investable, which meant they, they didn't like the floor plans, they didn't like the facades, um, they didn't like the kind of infrastructure that would be there in the, um, in the building um, and so they are trying to influence all of that to, to, to find buildings that they thought would make good investments. And then they also didn't like much of what they saw about the companies. The, a lot of Indian real estate development companies were fairly small outfits that were organized um, as, as family-run firms. And the way that they had done business in the past um, in India and actually continue to do business um, was uh, what investors would think of as informal. So a lot of cash payments, a lot of connections with politicians in order to get land and approvals. Um, they often, uh, real estate, you know, banks in India would not lend to real estate developers before about the mid 90s. So many of these developers had developed other ways of financing their projects. Um, often they, you know, for residential projects and people, they still do this, they would have um, uh, potential uh, buyers buy in before the project was built. Um, and as that money came in, they would, you know, that would, that people would pay in installments. And as the money came in, they would build the building. Um, but they would also have wealthy friends invest. So all this various kinds of informal financing. And so for, you know, for a uh, an investment board sitting outside of India, all of this looked incredibly shady. It looked not very trustworthy. It looked, you know, they didn't conform, right, to the kind of uh, expectations of these investors. Um, and so I, I look at the kind of the conflicts that emerge over this and the, the real pressures that these investors were putting on their potential partners to, to change the way that they did accounting, to change the way that the, um, the head of the company organized his company and his labor, the way he you know, even dressed or spoke. Um, and uh, so there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of pressure that they were placing um, in order to, with, you know, and holding out the carrot of, right, well, like if you do all these changes in your corporation, we will... <laughs> Um, we will fund you by X amount of money. And many Indian developers were um, on the, were, I'm not going to say happy to do this, but there was a kind of cachet, right? A kind of prestige that came from having an international investor. And so um, many corporations did, uh, and real estate developers did to a certain extent conform to these uh, norms. 
Yeah, but you also sort of um, very interestingly point out that this put developers, Indian developers in a sort of double bind because um, they both had to sort of make themselves and their firms look transparent. Um, and at the same time, the actual work of acquiring land um, through all the bureaucratic marshes um, and dealing with you know individual landowners was always a very murky business. Um, and that I thought was really interesting that, you know, uh, this is a an industry that demands transparency and yet transparency is pretty much impossible in in the work that they want done yeah and you know this word transparent was just one that came up all the time in my interviews and in my conversations um and in you know the events that i went to that that that's the term that um that foreign investors would use that, Oh, India, nothing is transparent here or Indian developers aren't very transparent or, you know, the way the market works is murky or not transparent. And so they, I feel like they use that and this kind of um, international discourse about transparency, that transparency is a really good thing that everyone should want it. um, And kind of held that out, like as a way to say, you know, the way things operate here in India is no good. And we know the best way and the best way is a transparent way. And they didn't necessarily mean like transparent as in um, uh, some kind of objective measure, but transparent as in like the way we're used to things working. Um, And so I I really saw that as kind of a a carrot that they held out, a, a term that they used in order to to achieve these changes that they wanted. Um, but at the same time, of course, you know, um, in order to agglomerate land, which is what a lot of the real estate developers were doing, what their main role here was, um, sorry, uh, <laughs> um, what, okay. you know, what a lot of the Indian real estate developers, um, what their kind of role in this process became was as a a land agglomerator. So they were the ones who put together the large parcels that could have this kind of large scale greenfield development that that foreign investors were interested in doing, right? They're not interested in an individual house plot. They want to do a whole township. Um, And um, in order to you know, land parcels are uh, historically quite fragmented in India. um, And so the real estate developers would have either agglomerated uh, land historically or would be going out and doing this sort of right as we, as I was doing the the field work um, and, and negotiating with individual landowners, you know, sort of family by family, village by village and trying to buy up land and putting it together. So, you know, that process is a, is a cash-based process. It, it depends on, you know, having local connections. There's a, incredible amount of politics involved. And, you know, there's just no way that this is um, a globally legible uh, process, right? And Indian real estate developers, in order to be successful, they needed to continue to do this work. And yet it was, as you say, a double bind, um, a kind of double standard, really, where the foreign investors needed them to do that work, <laughs> um, but didn't really want to know anything about it, wanted their the kind of the facade to be uh quote unquote, transparent, um, even while there were, you know, sort of violent and murky things that they were doing that necessarily needed to continue to do. And, you know, some Indian real estate developers that I spoke to were actually in some ways quite proud of their prowess at navigating the really complicated um, political and social landscape that they needed to um, navigate in order to do this work. And they, you know, 
scoffed at these foreign investors who came in and called them, you know, like just bankers. Like these guys don't even know what they're doing. They can't get anything done in India. What do they know? Um, you know, I actually have a lot of expertise and that expertise comes from the various, you know, social um, and political networks that I'm a part of. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, they, I think, some of them were quite swayed by the sort of prestige of foreign investment, but others um, and some at the same time were also quite torn and um, uh, resentful of the undervaluing of the kind of work that they were actually doing and needed to continue to do in order to, you know, build buildings. Yeah, I think that really fragments our understanding of, you know, this thing called global capital or global finance, which just um, as just this like unitary thing, because, you know, we start to see all these sort of frictions and um, all these sort of debates amongst, you know, people who are all trying to engage in this thing called global finance um, about how to do it and sort of these power contests between different groups like investors and developers, um, which each of which are trying to sort of accrue the maximum amount of value to their own expertise. Um, and I thought one of the really interesting um, things you mentioned was that um, this conflict began to come through in Indian developers sort of saying that the value is primarily in the agglomerated land and the building doesn't matter as much. Um, and investors sort of saying the opposite and saying that the land is not as valuable as, you know, the building we build on top of it. Um, could you speak a bit more about that sort of conflict between the two groups? Yeah, you know, they really had a very different um, model of what real estate development was. Um, just, you know, the foreign investors who came in really saw the building itself, its design, the construction um, as the thing that was going to generate value because they were thinking of the building in terms of long-term leases um, and leasing this out often, you know, for example, uh, if there was a commercial building to corporate clients, many, many maybe multinationals. So they really thought the value came in uh, producing the, exactly the kind of building that those kinds of corporates who could pay high rents would be interested in leasing. Um, but for Indian real estate developers, there was a lot in the way that the market had worked in India that um, mitigated against that understanding, right? And so the, the, the really difficult part of real estate development was agglomerating all that land. It takes an incredible amount of time and connections. Um, and that the building itself was sort of secondary, uh, partly also because um, even commercial buildings in India um, until this point had uh, were sold, so they would be sold off to many people. So from the developer's point of view, if you're going to sell a building, it doesn't really matter that much. I mean, as long as you can sell it and sometimes even sell it in advance to investors, then it doesn't like the layout and the construction um, sort of materials, et cetera, the design doesn't matter that much. What really mattered was getting all that land together <laughs> to build the building. Um, so it's just like a very different understanding of where value lay. And you, I saw that most where they were negotiating um, the cost of land and there were a lot of conflicts over this or, and the cost of land would then get translated also into sort of who got what share of whatever profits would accrue from the project. Um, and uh, so there was quite a bit of um, back and forth and contention there over what shape should this project take and who should get which percentage of profits. Um, and, uh, you know, 
course, in, the investors thought the developers were greedy and the developers thought the investors were greedy. And it, I think it came from, right, these uh, two very mo- different models of what real estate development was. Yeah. Um, they also, you also discuss in the book that there was this debate over, you know, what is a quality building? Um so what is that discourse of, um, you know, quality, like in what way is that reflective of a conflict between investors and developers or um, amongst those groups? Yeah. So in part, quality refers to, you know, the material uh, con- uh, conditions of the building, right? When materials go in and how well it's made, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and to some extent, you could argue, right, that the... Um, very things that made uh, the the Indian real estate model, which was kind of focused on the land and not on the buildings, led to kind of poor quality buildings. Um, but that's kind of in, in, a, in essence almost exactly the argument that foreign investors would also make. And I I found that they were really using that term quality, um, like transparency, as a way to um, denigrate their Indian partners um, as a way, as a value project, right? As a way to say, well, we actually have the expertise to do what's needed here and to produce quote unquote quality buildings. And you guys haven't figured that out yet. So let us come in and (laughs) partner with you and, you know, um, help you help you achieve this kind of success. And also what's more, you know, um, I I found that the term quality um, for uh, international investors was really more than that. It was, it it was a a shorthand for talking about a certain kind of um, buildings for a certain kind of person. So when they say quality, um, often when I then ask for, so like, what's the, what's your critique of what you see as being not quality and what they would describe is buildings that they just didn't, they felt actually didn't have the aesthetics to appeal to um, kind of uh, multinational corporate uh, workers, for example. And so I found it a very interesting discourse and I kind of traced through the various, various what I could term quality projects or the quality projects of these investors who wanted to produce a specific kind of design and aesthetic qualities in the building. Um, and then quality uh, projects of Indian real estate developers. Um, and I wanted to, in some ways, uh, decenter our thinking from quality as in um kind of craftsmanship or material construction of the buildings and actually think about quality as a discourse that's really talking about aesthetics and personhood as much. Um, At least that's the way that I was reading um, the way that foreign investors were talking about quality buildings or the lack of quality buildings in India. Um, And for Indian real estate developers, you know, they were concerned about quality too, but quality meant something a little bit different. Um, They were very concerned in a, a field uh, of um, uh, of many many competitors to distinguish themselves um, through discourses about quality, and um, they did so um, by talking about sort of their own quality, <laughs> um, by talking about the quality of their corporations as as a kind of trustworthiness. So the idea was like we're actually going to build the building that we told you that we would. Um, and you can see this in, the, in lots of advertisements. They show like, you know, um, actual construction underway and, and they'd have pictures and that sort of thing. Right. So it was about like a kind of corporate quality. And they um, were very um, a lot of advertisements also um, reference 
reference sort of ISO and other international quality uh, ratings. So it's a, a way of kind of distinguishing themselves in a field of competitors. Um, and they also, you know, the the kind of global aesthetic that um, foreign investors were after, they were also interested in that too. Um, and so a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of the, both the advertisements and the names and um, elements of the design of the buildings are very sort of overtly global. And they kind of um, uh, are attempting to... Um, uh, replicate this global quality register, which is what I call it, um, in India by, you know, naming things um, with uh, English sounding names um, or showing pictures of, you know, a Central Park in New York <laughs> um, in the brochure. Like the, there's this kind of overt uh, gesture to the global as an attempt to position their buildings within this kind of um, Im- uh, imagined world of, of kind of cor- global corporate success. Yeah, I mean, your book has definitely made it impossible for me to ever pass through Gurgaon again, you know, in any uncritical way. And I'm sure that that would be true for any reader. So thank you so much for writing this really important book that sort of intervenes in so many ways and so many literatures and commonsensical understandings. Um, I know that you are in Delhi at the moment um, for research. So could you tell us a bit about what you're working on now? Yeah, in some ways, it's an extension, and in some ways, it's a departure from the last project. Um, while I was here, um, you know, I, I also sort of I conceptualize Indian real estate markets right, as a as a, as a um, a series of interconnected markets, right? So there's markets in finance and markets in expertise. If you think about architects, there were um, markets in, um, you know, things like mortgages and in land. And so I, I was thinking about kind of all these different markets coming together. Um, and one of the markets, obviously, is media. So lots of media about homes. And uh, in my work, I look at, you know, the for example, the property sections of the newspapers, which is kind of a new phenomena. Um, and, you know, the way that newspapers are selling newspapers through advertisements, um, property-based advertisements. And so as, sort of as an ancillary market, um, I noticed that there was a lot of um, advertisement and media around um, the elements that go into homes. So not just real estate, but um, uh, lots of magazines about home decor, for example, about how to uh, decorate your home, what kind of tile to put in, um, <clears throat> what kind of faucets and pipes and furniture to buy, what kind of paint. Um, And that at the same time, um, there was uh, a real opening up of those markets as well. So you have lots of uh, foreign companies coming in, selling, you know, as I say, everything from paint to fixtures to furniture, um, modular kitchens were something that were being advertised. Um, And also Indian companies who were kind of retooling their image and refocusing on um, what they uh, thought of as growing um, Indian markets for these products. So I, in my new work, I'm kind of moving inside the home. So instead of thinking about kind of how, how the buildings got built and how the land got sold, I'm starting to move inside and think um, in some similar ways about the kind of interrelations between um, markets and um, cultural and social processes um, by trying to work with some of these companies that uh, or work with and study some of these companies that are um, selling things for inside the home and thinking about the ways in which then um, the home becomes a new site of, um, of prestige um, 
and distinction uh, for Indian elites, um, and also sites where inequality, for example, between uh, homeowners and their servants um, are produced and reproduced in uh, some kind of old and new ways. Um, so yeah, the new field work that I'm working on right now uh, is uh, kind of working with um, interior designers, home decor companies, um, and uh, residents in newly decorated homes. That sounds like a, an excellent continuation to your, um, to your first project. Um, and, you know, I wish you all the best with it, Professor Searle, and thank you so much for being with us today. 